Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop on iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Start Engine is a regulated ICO platform with a community of 155,000 plus registered users that's focused on issuing tokenized securities. Go to startengine.com slash unchained for a 20% discount on setup services to launch your regulated ICO. This is not legal advice. Sun Exchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. Sun Exchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency for helping to deliver solar power generation to businesses and communities in emerging markets. Visit thesunexchange.com to start earning solar powered money today. My guest today is Tor DeMeister, founder and CEO at Adamant Capital. Welcome, Tor. Hey, Laura. Your Twitter bio says you're an economist and an investor. What do you do in the space? Yeah, so I've been mainly trying to understand the space. I've been fascinated by it. And I understand, I try to understand it from an investor's point of view and more specifically value investor. Like I want to know what the long-term value propositions are in the space. And of course, early on, there was no such a thing as a space. There was just Bitcoin. So that's been my endeavor. I've published several reports over the years, um, articles, presentations that I've given. And so I'm, I'm just trying to help myself and in doing so. And by sharing that, I'm, I'm hopefully also helping uh, other people. And for Adamant Capital, are you managing other people's money or is it your own? Yeah, I, I can't say much about it yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is a fund and we're focused on Bitcoin. Like we want to align ourselves with uh, long-term Bitcoin holders. Can you say how much you have in assets under management? Uh, we haven't launched yet, so no. Okay. And how did you get into this space? Because before, I believe your company was Adamant Research, and that was how I came to know you originally. So I guess Adamant Capital must be a new transition for you. Why don't you just describe for me your history in the whole space? Sure, yeah. It goes back to I mean, probably like 2005, where I started becoming fascinated with economics uh, I wasn't too excited about the types of economics they were teaching at the uh, university. I was more interested in, in methodology and um, the philosophical side of things. So we uh, we ended up founding our own uh, research institute. So I did. Uh, I translated some books for that, and we had organized seminars. And I I published my own research in uh, an academic journal about um, the business cycle. So I did research on on business cycles and. Let's see. Um, and then I, I just had this tentative ambition to do something in academia. Uh, but then the actual, the real world financial system started rumbling uh, in the States, 2006, seven, And I just became more uneasy. And then, of course, it, it rolled over Belgium, where I lived at the time, this, this giant banking crisis. And that was, to me, a, a catalyst to start writing and researching more about real-world events. And um, 
and and also looking at financial independence and and how to invest those kind of things and uh and I did a free uh newsletter uh, at the time there was I don't think there was Twitter or it was very small at the time so I had a free newsletter and then uh, I came in touch with a publisher and by 2011 launched my own subscription based financial newsletter and in preparation for that and also to kind of I just really had this thing where I wanted to I wanted to be resilient and I felt like I wanted to be able to think outside the box. So I did a pretty long research trip to uh, Latin America and I learned about uh, Bitcoin in um, in Buenos Aires, actually, in, uh, in Argentina, where uh, some friends of mine were literally mining Bitcoin in their basement because that was the only way for them to uh, to get it. And even back in 2011, they saw it as an alternative investment. So that was, to me, the perfect context to learn about it. Because not only could they obtain it, they could send it to anywhere in the world, despite these very harsh capital controls at the time. And so during this time, you were managing your own research outfit. Is that what your job was? Yeah. So I was I was author of uh, a newsletter. We had a, uh, a new newsletter every month. Uh, we had a model portfolio that people could follow. And then, so I had partnered with a publisher and he would, you know, promote the newsletter and, and I would just do all the content. And then um, how did you start becoming an expert in the crypto space? Yeah. So, I mean, early on, I just, I, I really felt like I, I knew nothing. So I had to just dig in deep. And, and at the time it was a lot of Bitcoin talk, uh, looking at the, the forums and uh, I was lucky to be in touch a bit with uh, Peter Weyler as well, who's a Belgian and at the time already was doing some work on core development. So uh, I did an interview with him to learn more. And um, I went to the London 2012 Bitcoin conference. And then it was just mostly reading and absorbing. I was like, in terms of interacting, I was pretty passive, but I, I just wrote uh, for my, I think before Bitcoin hit $30, I had something like 8,000 words of analysis that I did for my readers. So yeah, I was really, I, I, it really struck me as something big. And then from 2013 onwards, I started doing a lot of conferences. Uh, and then from summer 2013, I had the sense that my readers weren't coming along greatly. Like they were still thinking that maybe it was a Ponzi scheme and, you know, their age profile was also not like mine. It was more like people in their 50s, maybe older. And I think only about 20, 25% actually came along and they actually did buy some Bitcoin, which I mean, obviously is huge because that means they got in in 2012, 2013. But um, it was also hard to promote the newsletter based on Bitcoin because it was just so small. And I I had wanted to do it full time. So in twenty summer 2013, I found a successor and um, I just became independent. I just uh, started managing my own portfolio. And um, yeah, I've been independent since. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I think that explains why I don't believe your research reports were paid, right? They were free. Yeah, I just wanted to like to me it's all like research and all that it's really a conversation starter and uh, I've I've just been looking for you know the right people to partner with and um and also just even geographically getting settled uh, took quite a while because I didn't want to keep living in Belgium. So, yeah, that's why I just did the free research. So, I had noticed that it's been a while since you published any research reports 
unless it's that somehow my email stopped receiving them. What were you doing during that time? Oh yeah, so I have been I have been doing work, but um, the reports and the the pieces that I put together, uh, I've been sharing more privately. Like it's it's more with potential investors and kind of like sharing thoughts that way. Uh, although I did do a medium post pretty recently. I think when Bitcoin was like eight thousand dollars or something, we put out a piece saying that we we don't think Bitcoin is going to uh, reach new highs in uh, in twenty eighteen. But yeah, it's it's true. Like I've been mostly focused on getting the business up and running. How do you value crypto assets? That's a great question because people used to, you know, ask me like, "Oh, what do you think of this? What do you think of that?" And I would just kind of like, you know, have an off the cuff opinion or think about it. Uh, but lately, especially the last year, it, it's been more from an institutional perspective that people ask me, like, how do you value this asset? And it took me a while to understand, but what they really mean is like, you know, do you, do you have a met- methodology? Do you have some kind of a, a system that you can apply or, or some kind of standards? And um, we actually did the exercise and we decided to develop somewhat of a system to, to start assessing long-term value potential of um of crypto assets and so in that framework we look uh, especially at uh, developers uh the quality of the developers involved that has the the largest weight in the in the rating we also uh have a section for code review where we actually look at the repository there's also um economically speaking it has to make sense um we also don't want uh, pseudo scientific you know, pseudo technology to be involved. Like we want the components of the projects to be um, somewhat established and proven or at least endorsed by um, uh, developers, engineers with a very high pedigree. So those are the kinds of things that uh, we look at. And so not so much at the community uh, or if there is, um, you know, influential people that are backing the project that I don't think reflects much of of long-term value. You are known for being a Bitcoin bull, maybe even a Bitcoin maximalist. Yes? No? Yeah, yeah Vitalik has called me that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but but uh, would you think, call yourself and, and I, that? It, yeah, it's kind of, there's this word in Dutch, it's called a huzenam. So it's kind of like a name. Uh, there's an equivalent for it in English. I can't think of it right now. But it's like, it's like a name that people call you in a derogatory way, but then you embrace it and you just you just kind of say, sure, like that's my name and you make it into something positive. So I feel that way about this this maximalism. If you look at how I think in twenty fourteen Vitalik defined it, it was is very, you know it was very like kind of dogmatic and almost religious sounding, like thinking that, you know, Bitcoin is the only way and there's never gonna be anything else and but I mean, to me, I've always been a cryptocurrency maximalist in the sense that I think that um, not that it should be that way, but just that that's how markets work is that one protocol is going to be dominant. And, and with that, I mean, like 80 percent of the market cap or something like that. And I've thought that when Bitcoin was, you know, Bitcoin dominance was 95 percent. I thought it when it was uh, 40 or 35 percent. And today I think we're at like 55. Uh, I still think so. I think I still think the long term. um market cap of Bitcoin is, is probably going to be about 80, 80% of, um, or more of, um, the cryptocurrency space. And I, I do mean, you know, there might be some other securitized tokens or things that have value, but I do mean the, 
the coins that are used or meant to be uh, money-like. Oh, okay. So you mean among the cryptocurrencies and not among the wider world of crypto assets? I mean, because like if you start securitizing, um, so if you start tokenizing securities, for example, well, that's a huge market, right? If if the Nasdaq starts doing that somehow, and uh, but even then, I think that it's actually more likely that those assets will be um, will be connected to the Bitcoin blockchain, like they, that they will be in a side chain or something like that, because that offers the best security. Like I, I don't know why you would need a separate network. But yeah, I mean, just in my mind, because I, I feel I feel pretty agnostic about uh, the let's say the token space when they're talking about how Bitcoin, uh, sorry, how you know tokens could or blockchain could disrupt maybe like um, you know land registry or um, you know the the issuance of securities or smart contracts. Like to me, that sounds like maybe video streaming in 1996. Like, you know, it's a great idea. I just don't know. You know, I don't know if we're 1996 or if we're 2007. Uh, so I don't know if it's way too early or if I'm just not not seeing it yet and I'm going to be a bit slow to understand that. So can you explain for me why it is that you think Bitcoin will account for 85% or some huge majority of this whole market? And also, can you explain how you can feel so confident in this belief when it's, you know, pretty early? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason why I think it is because I really see Bitcoin as a, a protocol that is is used in conjunction with other protocols. Um, it's a low level protocol. Its function is just to provide security. And uh, the the idea from the get go was that it was you know that layers were going to be built on it, and that is how how protocols scale, and that is how digital networks scale. And you see that also in biology, this modular idea that the way a complex and robust system comes into being is by um, a very simple and robust mechanism that then has a new mechanism added to it, and another, and another, and they all have different functions. Uh, and so you get the, these layers on top of each, or like how a city grows, like it starts off with a defensible position uh, close to the river. And then over time, it's like there's roads that are built to it. And then that becomes the draw. And then more and more layers are added to the city that make it appealing to live there. So so uh, the idea, and especially that it's digital, so there's no, there's no borders, like it's, it's even you know, there, there's no barrier to entry if you compare it to, you know, in, in 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 the internet world or the internet startup world. I do think there's more geographical boundaries, like there's Google, and then China has its own search engine, its own uh, e-commerce platforms, and, and that has mostly to do with politics. But when you're talking about these peer-to-peer -peer protocols, there are no politics. So that's why there is only one BitTorrent, for example. Uh, there's only one TCPIP. So that's why I think when it comes to, you know, storing value, uh, because like the more value uh, Bitcoin accrues, the sec more secure the network becomes. So that's kind of like this virtuous cycle. And then, of course, there's also the developers that um, have been building it and that are continuing to build it. I just don't see projects that have similar pedigree when it comes to developers. And, and with pedigree, I don't mean like, you know, noble genes or anything, but just like, uh, people who have significant achievements in relevant domains, like in 
peer to peer protocols, um, in uh, internet infrastructure, in memory compression, in uh, cryptography, those kind of things. So that's, you know, roughly speaking where I'm coming from. You know, it's also like there are a lot of rare metals in the world, but there's only one that's used uh, that had, has had a monetary function and that's gold. So, so similarly, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's these properties that Bitcoin has uh, that make it the most secure network today. And I think that once that position is there, the, uh, the Lindy effects kicks in over time is that the longer that exists, the more likely it is that that um, Bitcoin will have that function going forward. And then, you know, when you think about um, applications or things that can be built on top of these blockchains, all the interesting ones um, involve a lot of value. So that means they have to be anchored in something very secure. So that's why I make that link of like, well, you know, why wouldn't it be um, anchored into Bitcoin as well? Do you worry about the work on chains that will make multiple blockchains interoperable, kind of like the cosmoses of the world? Do you worry that they will kind of make it possible for multiple blockchains to become uh, prominent, but not for anyone like Bitcoin to become dominant? No, I don't worry. No, I mean, like, I'm really a free market guy. So like, if people if people make stuff that makes you know, things easier for engineers or for end users, that is just, that's fantastic. And, you know, if anything, if people build bridges between these blockchains, then the market can only become more efficient because then transition from one to the other is also easier. So, so the more compatibility there is, the more the market really has uh, a say. And, and th- that means the end user, so yeah, no, it's not worrisome. Right, but what I, I mean is fantastic. you don't worry about your investments then maybe not turning out as well as... Oh, the- yeah, I still want to see, <laughs> I still want to see value, right? And so I like the framework I was talking about earlier, like when I apply that to, you know, the more prominent projects, I just, I don't see value that's any that's anything close to what Bitcoin offers. And so that I just don't, you know, I see more novelty and, 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 you know, more pseudoscientific assertions and things like that. Um, okay. Well, yeah, let's talk about one of those. Cause I know that you're skeptical of proof of stake, but pretty sanguine about proof of work. Why? So yeah, proof of stake to me is it's a voting system. Like I think in, in essence, it's, that means it's a political system. And I think that history has shown that political systems are not as robust as systems that are based on proof of work. Like, you know, there's this theory, I don't know if it's true, but that, um, you know, uh, what was stored under the pyramids, I think especially the Sphinx in in Egypt, that uh, it was actually a, a sort of a library for a long time. And it was, there were like precious objects and, and knowledge that that civilization wanted to preserve for, I mean, I bet for eternity. And so rather than having a political system to protect it, where, you know, there were guards and then there were all kinds of economic incentive to make sure that the guards were not dishonest. And if you did something wrong, you'd be voted out. Instead, they just built a giant structure on top that would be expensive to remove and that it would even have value to preserve. And that's why for thousands of years, 
you know, these objects, because they have found uh, things underneath them, have been preserved. So I think that, um, and, and, you know, of course, in, in the banking world, we have seen some examples of, you know, fairly decent resilience, like the Bank of Amsterdam was a full reserve gold bank for about 200 years. And that was a kind of a political structure. Uh, but I think that those examples are way more rare uh, in in that than examples that um, are aligned with the the idea that you 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 need to do work to prove that um, or or to gain access to uh, a certain it's kind of meritocratic idea. I think that is more resilient than a, a vote based system. And so you know, uh, and when you then go into the nitty gritty and you look at the attack vectors. There's always creative solutions possible to say, oh, well, you know, this vulnerability, we're going to, you know, we're going to punish them in that way if they do this. But then, you know, Paul Stortz has argued this, and I think he's right, is that, you know, the, the further you take those additional layers of trying to make proof of stake work, the more you're, what you're actually doing is creating obfuscated proof of work. So, so it's still proof of work. It's just in the shape of something very bureaucratic rather than just burning electricity. And what do you make of hybrid systems like the Decard system, which has both a, a proof of work and proof of stake element? Um, I'm skeptical. Like I'm, I'm open to it potentially working, but like to me, to me really what, what Bitcoin is, is, is a mechanism to convert electricity into financial reliability. And so if you start injecting protocols with like you know some energy and then some voting and you and then i don't know i I struggle to see how that's that's more efficient um or better somehow or creates better reliability than uh than what bitcoin does especially because you know eventually the uh the amount of energy that's burnt in bitcoin is going to be defined by supply and demand like it's just going to be transaction fees that pay the miners so it'll be it'll be financial institutions that will end up defining how much energy is is used to secure bitcoin do you worry about how much energy is required to power proof of work in terms of the environmental impact not really why not yeah i I don't really worry about it because and i mean i'm open to like i i don't want to be dogmatic that like oh you know this is the the end all solution. I just think that it's kind of the best we got. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm not like, wow, it's fantastic that we're flaring off so much gas or whatever. But but I do think it's important to to look at the type of energy that we're talking about. Like Bitcoin mining is the most efficient it's the most economically uh, profitable if you do it in areas where you have low competition as an energy consumer so naturally that leads you to very remote areas where the energy is kind of locked in and hard to transport out of it so like think about like siberia or iceland or uh, washington state uh, you know all those kind of remote areas that's where most of the bitcoin mining happens or like mongolia now there's of course an environmental component if you're going to like burn a lot of fossil fuels to do that but that's you know that concern is there with any industry is that you know it's just it's just a, a fact of nature that there's different shapes that energy takes uh but when it comes to 
you know, threatening urban populations, I think that is that risk is overblown. Like people are never going to mine Bitcoin in New York City. They're like it's it's always going to be in a place <laughs> I, I where there's say. very low uh, competition. I wouldn't say never. I'm sure it's happened previously. Oh yeah, but but that's probably during, like in dorm you know, rooms or something. Frenzy, <laughs> if there's an investment frenzy, then for a while it becomes profitable to do it, even you know in in populated areas. But but over the long run, I think mining profitability is gonna it's gonna be thin margins for miners just because you can compete from anywhere in the world. Like there's zero barrier to entry. I mean, maybe some. You know, your latency, if your internet connection is not very good, you have a little bit of a disadvantage, but that's not, not too much because of the, the, the block times being 10 minutes. It's, it's fairly, you know, people are mining in very remote areas already. Right. Um, so, so I think that because of that competition, the, the profitability is going to go down and then it'll really come to like, do you have, you know, two cents, uh, electricity? And as soon as you go higher and, and any, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe that's where citizens have access to. Anyway, so I, I'm just saying, I think yeah. that it, it's going to be remote areas. Okay. We're going to discuss institutional money, Bitmain and Bitcoin Cash. But first, I'd like to take a quick break for our fabulous sponsors. Sun Exchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. Sun Exchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency while solar powering businesses and communities in emerging markets. Through this sunexchange.com, for as little as $10, and in just a few clicks, you can purchase solar cells and lease them to projects in the world's sunniest regions, earning you an income stream of monetized sunshine, paid in Bitcoin. SunExchange members can earn between 10 and 15% IRR, backed by the power of the sun. Founded in 2015, SunExchange is operating solar projects across Southern Africa, entirely powered by our members' solar cells. Our partners include SolarCoin, the United Nations Development Programme, and the Energy Web Foundation. Visit www.thesunexchange.com to check terms and eligibility to join the crypto solar revolution. Start earning solar-powered money today. Interested in raising capital through a security token offering? StartEngine is your full-stack solution. StartEngine, a regulated ICO platform with a community of over 155,000 registered users, was founded in 2014 by Howard Marks, co-founder of Activision Blizzard. Since the implementation of the JOBS Act, StartEngine has helped over 160 companies raise capital. In fact, StartEngine can help a company build its own tokens and is creating a secondary market upon which those tokens can be traded. In short, StartEngine provides a complete token ecosystem. If your company wants to launch a security token offering, just go to startengine.com slash unchained for a free consultation and a 20% discount on future regulated ICO setup services. That's startengine.com slash unchained. This is not legal advice. I'm speaking with Tor DeMeister. Earlier, you mentioned institutional players. What types of institutional players do you interact with? And how would you describe their current attitude toward crypto and also how it's changed over time? Uh, for me, it's mostly high net worth individuals, family offices. Um, I do talk to some other people as well, but I think it's it's a bit too early for them to to get involved. It's mostly to do with uh, the custody of these assets and, and kind of closely related to that is just the, the regulatory framework. Like they're not comfortable that how how things are custodied. It's, it looks very alien from kind of a traditional traditional financial perspective. You know, like for example, how an exchange 
they have their own assets and then they have a market that they're making and then they're also storing uh, the assets for their customers all at the same time. That kind of freaks out uh, large institutions because they don't know they, they don't know that like they're used to uh, a lot more separation of duties in 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 the traditional world, and that kind of like checks and balances, if you will. So, what do you expect in terms of the in- influence of institutional money going forward? Like, how do you think it'll enter the space? I think it's a little overblown right now in the sense that, yes, we have institutional involvement, but they're pretty agnostic. Like there's a, a lot of trading firms that have gotten involved and they, they are agnostic about the price. They're just looking to make money uh, either, you know, by betting to the upside or betting to the downside. But they do add liquidity, which is valuable over time. But I, I see just hesitation still from um, from the institutions that, that are getting involved. But then again, when it comes to infrastructure, that's where really interesting things are happening, um, where technology providers are really trying to find how can we add value? Like we've done this, we've done cybersecurity for 20 years, 30 years. Uh, how can we add value here uh, in this space? Or we've built uh, secure hardware for so long. Like how can we you know, come up with our and, and I think we've seen it in Bitcoin mining now is that um, more traditional players are coming out with their own chips and are competing with these Bitcoin startups that have kind of proven, or I mean, sorry, mining startups that have proven that there's value. And now uh, it's kind of like similar to how Tesla proved that there's a market for electric vehicles. And now we're seeing, you know, Jaguar and all these other companies come up with their own vehicles. I, I think it's similar and that's great for adoption. It's just fantastic that... You know, all the, all this experience is now coming on board and, and building things that um, that regulators could be comfortable with, uh, and that end consumers might be able to understand a little better than what's been out there so far. Last year, a lot of, I guess, hubbub was made over the launch of the Bitcoin futures, but ultimately, those products did not actually lead to a longer term bull market. And if anything, obviously, <laughs> we've been in a a bit of a prolonged bear market. So what effect do you think the opening of BACT, which is the federally regulated crypto exchange that the International Continental Exchange, Continental Exchange, Microsoft and Starbucks are going to launch later this year? What effect do you think that will have? I think it's huge. I, I think it's huge. It's really important. Um, you know, it's like institution, that's what institutions want. Like they want this, a very established firm to come up with, their version or their answer to custody, for example, or trading, or like they want, they want like a prime broker. Like who, who is a prime broker in, in the crypto space right now? Like it's, it's unclear, right? Uh, it's kind of like the, the, the ultimate bank that is, that is pretty unclear um, who that is. And so like backed could, could maybe, you know, have a role like that, uh, and it's also it's it has to do a lot with relationships as well. Like people want to work with uh, companies that they already are comfortable with. Uh, there's a lot of career risk involved. Like if you're if you're on the Bitcoin team or the crypto team of a big company and you recommend they work with kind of a a scrappy startup that has been around for two years, that's a lot of career risk. Whereas if you recommend them to work with um, ICE who's been around for decades and they, you know, and they own the New York stock exchange and, you know, that's, that's very different. So all of that is, and, and so of course last year we had the futures, but 
you know, the, it was retail. Retail was was setting the price at the end. Like as when we went above like four or five thousand dollars, I think all of the the crazy runups was mostly retail investors. So they didn't, you know, they didn't really care. And I, honestly, I don't think the futures brought it all down. Um, it's just that's more coincidental. Wait, and so I'm sorry, you thought that the reason the futures didn't have a positive effect is what? And and then why is it that the action will be different? Oh, yeah. So so there's just different dynamics at play. Like like retail investors are usually late and they usually get burnt. And so, you know, they invested from five, six, seven thousand dollars up. And then, of course, in all these other assets as well, they're now down from the peak 85, 95 percent. But that doesn't mean that these milestones are not important to have Bitcoin futures, to have eventually a Bitcoin ETF, to have, you know, the, the, and to have, for ICE to have their own crypto exchange. It's huge because that, that means high net worth individuals are more comfortable, family offices are more comfortable, and then endowments start becoming, you know, more able to also invest. It just, it's like it unlocks new markets. Does that make sense? Like it unlocks money that before could not invest and now they can. So I'm sorry, Baxter will have that effect, but the future somehow didn't? Well, I mean, if you're a big institution, like the wheels turn more slowly. And so, of course, they will have had meetings about this crypto thing. But before they're actually ready to invest, it could take many months. So, you know, even if the price and also, again, there's career risk, right? If an asset is already up 500% in a year and you you are the one driving that decision to pile in and invest, you can be the joke of the company a few months later if it crashes, right? There's this career risk there. It's like, and also like there's a little more maturity in the institutional space that, you know, nothing goes up forever and, and we've already seen several crashes. So let's wait it out a bit. So yeah, you know, it just, things just take time. Okay. And will that also apply when back arrives or will it not? So I, I don't know. I, I, to me, I think the ETF is is much bigger than than backed oh, in terms of like, why because, is that? Because ETF is universally accessible. Like it's retail investors can buy it right away. Uh, we saw it in gold. There was like when when the first gold ETF arrived, there was a lot of inflow uh, because finally people could just you know in their Schwab account like click a button and buy gold, and then and that that drove awareness and it drove demand. I think it'll be similar for uh, a Bitcoin ETF. You mentioned mining earlier. How would you characterize the current state of Bitcoin mining and also China's influence on the Bitcoin protocol and Bitcoin mining in particular, I guess? Yeah, well, it seems like it seems like mining is um, is becoming a bit less centralized uh, with the, you know, seems like Bitmain is in some trouble in the sense that they haven't been able to come up with a new chip that is uh, since, what was it, the S9, which has been out for almost two years now. Uh, which is a big problem because other manufacturers are coming out with new chips. Uh, and as far as I understand, the main chip designer has actually left Bitmain and started to compete with them. So to me, this is all part of the, what I call, uh, and other people as well, the commoditization of um, ASIC mining. So that these chips become a, a commodity, just like uh, a chip for a smartphone. It can be used in any in any phone, and so you can just build your own wrapper around it or your your own software stack 
plug that in there. But the chip itself is accessible to a lot of people. And of course, there's going to be some advantage to owning the, you know, the blueprints of the chip. Uh, like uh, I've heard that, uh, like Apple, they they kind of keep the best chips to themselves and put it in their own phones and then maybe sell some others. And definitely Samsung does that. Uh, so, you know, there's some advantage in, in, in having being vertically integrated as a, a miner. But I do think that a huge factor is going to be uh, energy costs uh, when it comes to mining more than the chips. And up to now, because we were kind of catching up with, with Moore's Law, right now we, we're really at the cutting edge for mining chips. And so the larger manufacturers are just going to bring out new chips over time. And the difference is going to be more made at the margin where, you know, if you have a deal with some, some kind of oil shake who gives you almost free energy, that, that'll, that'll make more difference. And so the result is that mining is going to be distributed over the world rather than concentrated in China because China doesn't have great energy efficiency. Like uh, when it comes to electricity, the costs are not that great. You've been talking a little bit about Bitmain, and I noticed that you have some pretty critical tweets about them, or at least you've been tweeting critical articles about them. What do you make of their plans to IPO? Yeah, well, so I don't know much more than what I've seen or what I've passed on. Like I said, like this this chip problem that they have, like that is that's is very crucial, right? Because if you're if you have ancient technology, you get killed in 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 crypto, like you, you really get killed very fast. Uh, and, and if you have obsolete hardware, it's just a brick. Like if you have, you know, Bitcoin mining hardware, that is maybe you could ship it for incredibly cheap to maybe Venezuela or something where people can still squeeze a little bit of value out of it, but you're going to lose market share very quickly. So that I think is a concern. And I think that it's pretty common knowledge that uh, Bitmain has not been very honest in terms of their strategies. They've been very like, you know, scorched earth in, in, in trying to gain dominance. And I think that has caused a lot of bad blood and people just wanting to compete with them rather than make partnerships or join them because they don't trust them. Yeah. For listeners who missed my episode with David Vorick of Sciacoin and Nebulous and now Obelisk, uh, you guys should definitely listen to that. That was a pretty interesting conversation. Bitcoin has decided to pursue scaling in the form of layer two solutions like Lightning. What activity are you seeing there and what effect do you think it is having or will have on the Bitcoin ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, Lightning, it's interesting how it's like a generational transition. Like uh, Bitcoin developers that I know, core developers especially, they're like early 30s more. And then uh, the Lightning developers that I see are like significantly younger. And that's, that's I think that's so cool is that they've discovered this um, niche where they can almost learn from the beginning as if it's, you know, we're talking Bitcoin in 2010, 2011. And, um, and they can just build stuff right away. It's just fantastic to see these, I think they call them laps, lightning apps uh, pop up here and there and um, people experiment. I think the lightning capacity is growing at uh, 60% per month, which I think is pretty incredible. It's all very small still, of course, but, but um, Bitcoin is also very small in 2010, 2011. So I think it'll be, I think it's, it's going to be really big. Um, and I think that especially millennials and younger are going to run with this 
and um, and and you know when people said Bitcoin is going to be the the um, the money for the internet, I think Lightning enables that. The Bitcoin main chain never had that ability, but uh, Lightning transactions can actually facilitate millions of transactions, extremely small transactions, machine to machine payments, all these things. So yeah, I mean to me it's 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 something I didn't expect would happen. Like back in 2012, 13, I just always thought Bitcoin was Bitcoin and it was going to be this kind of store of value thing and that um, smaller smaller payments would happen through intermediaries like Coinbase. Uh, I, I just, I didn't know it would be possible to actually have this decentralized payment network on top of it. You are known for being pretty bearish on Ethereum, which is the second largest crypto asset by market cap, has a ton of traction and has seen a lot of activity in the form of things like the DAO taking off, ICOs taking off, um, a lot of developer activity around things like CryptoKitties, you know, a ton of other protocols being on top of it that are ERC-20 token compatible. Despite all this activity, why are you negative on Ethereum? Yeah, I've been an Ether skeptic since 2014, actually. Um, I did a little, or I took part in an interview with uh, Joe Lubin and a few other people. They were in Switzerland back then. And uh, I checked back the video a while ago, and I asked, my first question was, what is going to be the utility of Ether? Like, what, what are people going to do? And they was like, well, it's a platform for experimentation, and we don't know yet. But I still have that question today. Like when I look at the the Ethereum dApps, um, I still, you know, what can you do there that you can't do on Amazon AWS or, you know, some kind of centralized server? So that was one question. And the other question I asked was, how are you going to scale? And the answer was, we're looking into sharding solutions, which is the idea that you split up the blockchain and you store it in you kind of spread the storage over uh, a large number of, of nodes and then somehow maintain integrity or something like that. And that was back in 2014. And they're still working on, you know, sharding solutions, which I don't think is going to happen. So, so my skepticism comes from the place where I'm afraid that they uh, tried to cram too much in one layer and they should have uh, gone for a lean solution instead uh, like Bitcoin, where you just focus on security for the first layer, and then you have applications and interesting stuff in higher layers, like uh, faster transactions, for example, or uh, interesting smart contracts. Like that's that's a higher level uh, application. And and my worry was that if you cram it all in one layer, you're going to compromise. You, you're going to have like a, an inferior solution in all respects. Uh, the only difference is that you can launch faster, which is what they did. They launched very fast, and uh, and so they captured this market interest for having your own tokens and um, you know maybe like the interest for decentralized applications in general uh, and and people who didn't really know how to code and see uh, which and and have this you know access this um, difficult infrastructure of Bitcoin. They just ran with. Um, you know, uh, what was it again? Python and, and these, like these Java, these kind of like similar, like easily accessible uh, virtual machine languages that Ethereum developed. Uh, but I think ultimately my, my 
my concern still stands is like, how is this going to scale and how are you going to keep it decentralized? And I, I don't see it uh, still. And that's why long-term I'm bearish. And don't you worry about the fact that they do have a lot of developers working on it? Uh, and that for that reason alone, um, despite the te technical difficulties that those developers will be highly motivated to figure out those problems and right. continue well, working on that platform. Yeah. And I have a medium post about this. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not worried about the Bitcoin fork wars, but uh, I am losing sleep over Ethereum. But that's like, I think I wrote that two years ago. Um, so right now, I don't feel that. Uh, like, I, I want to stay humble in the sense that, you know, I could be wrong. And uh, But right now, I don't see that. Um, I don't, I, because it's like, an analogy that works for me is, is Yahoo. Back in the day, Yahoo was the blue chip internet company. They had grown very fast. They were indexing the web um, and all the startups were using them to advertise. They were the advertising platform online. The problem is that fundamentally, they were not scalable uh, They because the, their approach was to manually go through the entire internet and make these portal websites and then, so they're more, they were more a media company than a technology company. And that's, that's my worry too, is that Ethereum is more leaning towards PR and media. And just when it comes to actual, you know, uh, engineering is actually not that strong. Like I've been trying to find rockstar engineers in, in Ethereum, really when it comes to core infrastructure, and I haven't been able to find them like people who have significant, um, achievements in other areas that they could then apply here. I just, well, I think I they tend to be that. younger, similar to the way you describe the lightning. Right. Developers. They yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. So you could say maybe there's a genius in there and, and, you know, they're, they're just, well, I think a lot of people would say that was Vitalik. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, I mean, they've, they've, they've also said that about Vlad and other people involved is like, you know, like, or, or they would say like, Oh, well, Mark Zuckerberg was, um, you know, was very young when he started Facebook like that. But but my counter argument would be like, yeah, but I'm pretty sure that Mark was able to attract world-class engineers to be excited about Facebook. And then, you know, they also helped build out uh, the company further. And so I'm not seeing world-class developer f uh, and when it comes to core infrastructure, right? I'm not talking about these dApps and stuff. Maybe there's brilliant people there. Flock to Ether to, to solve because... The people that I've come to respect over the years as, as, you know, extremely high pedigree, extremely competent, they've been critical um, of the architecture itself of Ether. And so it's kind of like, if you, I can't fix that, right? It's like, I would have to just, you know, come up with a different protocol. Like I, I can't fix it is what they say. And that's why they're not involved. Um, so the, 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 the problems with Ether is, is blockchain bloat. Like the blockchain is so bloated. And um, uh, the 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 nodes or the the client software is not optimized. But but um, to go back to earlier, how you were saying that the really strong developers are in Bitcoin, but there aren't any on Ethereum. You also had written a blog post about how, despite the fact that Betamax was the superior technology, that VHS beat it out. So how do you take into account, you know, that and sort of lessons that might be learned from that? And apply it here. Yeah, well, but but I would say so. Yeah, so Betamax. I don't know how young our audience is, but but it was basically an alternative to uh, VHS. It was it was also 
film on a tape and you would have a specific player for it and then you could record and, and replay videos. And Betamax had a, a shorter, that was their main flaw is that it was higher quality, but the length of the video was shorter. So it was too short to actually record an entire film on it. And VHS had the right balance. Uh, to me, I would say that those are higher level. Um, those are consumer products. Um, that's not the case when you're talking about cryptocurrency. Like those are core protocols and that's where engineering just matters so much because there's just so much weight is going to be leaning on that, that, you know, any kind of vulnerability is going to destabilize everything that's built on top of it. So it's, it's like, it's like building a nuclear power plant or, you know, building a rocket that's going to put astronauts on the moon. It's like, it's so critical that you don't get it wrong. And so that's, that's, you know, when you're talking about consumer products, you can move fast and uh, and break things. But I don't think that goes for, for core protocol. Yes, I would agree with you there. You've been critical of Bitcoin Cash as well. What do you think the prospects are for this coin? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's always like like the, the value, one of the value. Oh, that was also um, <clears throat> one element that we look at when we value a protocol is like, well, is it scalable? Like, is there any credible scaling future? And Bitcoin Cash, the way it started was um, this hard fork of Bitcoin that was not including a critical bug fix, which is SegWit. Like SegWit mainly is a bug fix that um, allows for the Lightning Network. And so not having that was kind of handicapping themselves. And there was a theory that um, Bitmain had a way to kind of cheat by using ASIC boost, like kind of using uh, exploiting uh, the bug actually in, in, in Bitcoin and that they were able to like mine 20% more efficiently than the rest of the world. And, and, and when SegWit was introduced, they lost that edge. They, they couldn't do covert ASIC boost anymore. But with Bitcoin Cash, they, they kept that advantage. But then at the price of not, you know, not having a protocol that is scalable. Well, wait, just so to, to me, establish, that's just, it was never proven that they were doing that, right? Um, no, it's, it's, it's a, uh, was it never proven that they did that? Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's hard because it was covert ASIC boost. Like it's, I think as far as I know, it was, uh, proven that it, it was possible to do ASIC boost in a covert way, uh, as long as SegWit was not implemented. And so the, the question then was why would Bitmain be advocating so hard against SegWit if there is zero economic benefit for them to do that? Of course, there's, there's theories that they just didn't like small blocks and they wanted big blocks. That's possible. Like, I, I'm, I, I don't claim to have the ultimate say on, you know, whether they, they did or did not do ASIC boost. Uh, but, but Bit, Bitcoin Cash, like, the name is deceiving. It's kind of actually probably caused significant financial losses to newbies who thought they were buying Bitcoin, but they were buying something else. Um, it's not scalable. They don't have credible developers. And it's it's based it it was founded on a hard fork, which now is showing that um, there is no limit to that. Right now, Bitcoin Cash itself is falling apart. There's different factions who want different block sizes, and so it gets fragmented. It's it's a big mess. Like I, I honestly I don't see I don't see the value there uh, long term unless some kind of big government would maybe decide to back it. But at this point, I feel like they've already they already ruined what was there by making the blocks so big. Like it's, it's, 
it's kind of a centralized racket right now. A couple minutes ago, you mentioned good crypto assets, plural. Which other coins do you think are good besides Bitcoin? Um, I think that the other value propositions are unproven, but uh, you know, interesting nonetheless. Um, I like when uh, people iterate on the proof of work mechanism. Uh, like I, f- I find uh, Bram Cohen's Chia network interesting because it has a bit of a different attack vector, but it's still based in proof of work. Then uh, I'm uh, intrigued by Mimblewimble, which is pr- uh, going to come out as Grin, I believe. And that's just because of the pedigree of the developers involved. And just remind me, that's a privacy coin? Yeah, like Mimblewimble basically um, doesn't have this this big blockchain. It uh, it's it's a lot more efficient uh, with with handling uh, the integrity of the transactions, uh, and it just tries to make sure that, as far as I understand it, that um, there's no double spending. But then it doesn't bother to uh, store all the transactions going back, and so that actually improves privacy. That's kind of I, I probably need to study it again, but that's you know that's why I, I decided to um, give Grin uh, a follow, um, and then in the altcoins, I mean it's only uh, it's only Litecoin, and 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 even that is going to be like a limited role. I think the the idea is just it's been around for a long time, and so it's unlikely to just die off. So I think there's some value there, and then it's very similar to Bitcoin, which means that. Uh, it can be seen as a hedge by um, investors over time, just like how silver is similar to gold. And so people kind of have some exposure to both. And to some extent, it can be a test net for Bitcoin as well. Like it, it implemented SegWit a bit earlier. So I think that there's kind of a symbiosis there. And right now, I think Litecoin is like at 2% the value of Bitcoin. So, you know, maybe that'll go up a, bit, a little bit or, it, you know, it'll stay around that. So I think that there's... And do you think none of these smart extent. contract platforms that are all in this race, that none of them have any promise or will take off? Well, so that's uh, that's where I have a harder time to judge. Like I, I, I've been mostly, my investment career, I've been focused on security and store of value. And uh, to me, um, a smart contract is a higher level function than store of value like it it, but it seems to and so you know i want to be humble in the sense that i don't know like they might be great protocols but the question i keep asking myself is that if you come up with this great protocol like well couldn't you integrate it in bitcoin somehow so that you have both like you have your fantastic smart contract idea and at the same time you have the secure backing uh which is what bitcoin already provides um Mm. so yeah like I, I, I don't understand when people say we are a payments first blockchain or we are a smart contract first blockchain. It's like, but if you want to grow big, like, are people going to have to trust that um, it's extremely secure? Is that, you know, don't you need that premise? And that's why I, I've been so bearish on Ether is that I think they they kind of went too fast and, and skipped this core part. And, uh, and now they can't get it back like this store of value it, it's it's not it's not decentralized anymore you know they they don't really have scaling prospects and so yeah they do have these contracts that can execute but what's that really worth is if if no startup can run their own ether node anymore 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know if many people would agree with you um, about those last three points about it not being decentralized, not having scaling options. But like, if you think about think about the nodes, like you know, like people are outsourcing running Ether nodes uh, because it's it's uh, it's so bloated and it requires so much bandwidth and rebooting and tweaking. So, oh, you're talking about the mining. No, no, just running nodes. No, running nodes. Yeah, even okay. like FastSync apparently is running into trouble now because um, the Ether blockchain has grown so much faster than Bitcoin because, of course, the Ether doesn't have blocks, quote unquote. Right. But I mean, it shows like a certain level of traction. Yeah, but 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 it's kind of like, you know, uh, that was my, that's what I said in 2016 is that if this growth continues, it's going to hit a terabyte by um, 2018. And it has, right? And then people <laughs> say, oh, but just do fast sync. Yeah, but fast sync means that you trust other nodes to have the true version of the Ether network. And so you kind of, you're just steadily undermining um, that the idea that you don't have to trust, you can verify yourself. That right. idea is pretty, and then of course, the all the successive hard forks that we've seen, I think also have undermined the decentralized nature. I'm not talking that. I'm Wait, not you mean the one that, hard fork? Well, the, there's been a lot of hard forks in Ether, right? Other than the the one after the DAO, what are the other ones? Yeah, like they've done upgrades, uh, and like recently they've um, they've uh, changed the um, the money supply. Basically, they changed the financial policy, and it was kind of like a hawkish move. It was to like diminish supply of new currency, and now they're negotiating with miners to kind of um, change the block reward. If I if I remember right, so you know that means that they're confident that. The nodes are going to follow their version of Ether, even though it's a hard fork. So I think that already shows that it's it's no longer decentralized. Like in Bitcoin, if you want to do a hard fork, you have these, you get these wars, right? It's it's this uproar and rebellion. And well, there have been a whole bunch of hard forks in Bitcoin too. So uh, I don't know. Really? Like there's there's like maybe I mean one... there's Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin. Oh I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Like... yeah. Of course, but but yeah. I mean, but by that standard, we've had two thousand hard forks in Bitcoin, right? All these altcoins are forks of Bitcoin. So I mean, right. if if you look at actual I mean, you know, BTC, if you look at BTC, there's not you know maybe you could argue there was one bug fix that counted as um, a hard fork. I think it was early twenty thirteen or something, uh, but that didn't change anything of the policy. So by any practical standard, Bitcoin has not had hard forks. And I think that's what it gives its value is that it's always reverse compatible and forward compatible. And that means that it's a stable foundation to to actually build these layers on. Okay, well, we could talk about all this stuff forever, but we're running out of time. So this has been a fabulous discussion. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, I would say just Google my name. The first link is probably my Twitter account. And then the second uh, will be my Medium account. That's where I publish uh, most of my articles. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Tor, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Sigaretti, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.